My guest is Dr. Peter Kingsley. Many of you remember Dr. Kingsley because he was the most downloaded program on our server, over 100,000 downloads. It's a lot of people to go back to an archive to listen to a program. And he is one of the most skilled and learned revisionists in historical philosophy and religion, focusing on ancient Greece and the origins of Western civilization. He's a graduate of Cambridge University. He has served as a fellow at the Warburg Institute in London, awarded many honorary professorships in several universities in the United States and Canada, and he is often considered a radical reinterpreter of early Greek philosophical and spiritual traditions. He has a new book. It's called A Story Waiting to Pierce You, Mongolia, Tibet, and the Destiny of the Western World. It's written as a short inspirational story. However, it's based upon volumes of research that will forever change our understanding about the origins of our civilization's birth in the Mediterranean. Nice to have you with us today. Hello, Gary. Nice to be here. Uh, We certainly are looking forward to this discussion. Uh, Now, a a couple of issues. I'm going to read as we go through our program some commentaries from other individuals that will um, give you a jumping-off point uh, because there's not a lot of forms in the United States for truly progressive thinkers. There are plenty of forms for uh, liberal uh, or Democratic and and conservative and and, uh, Republican talking heads, but this is a different story. This is a deeper story. So here we go. With all of our learning and all of our data and research accumulated throughout the centuries and the millennium, our world is as fragmented as ever, at least in my opinion, and perhaps fragmenting and unraveling even more rapidly today than yesterday. We want to believe there are distinctions between cultures and civilizations and races and religions, and we want to believe these distinctions go back since the dawning of humankind. However, you've uncovered that the polarity between East and West is more of an illusion arising from a self-centered sense of cultural superiority starting in the ancient Mediterranean, and particularly Greece, and that cultural hubris continues to define what we call Western civilization today. So the last time you were a guest, you spoke about the sacred origins of Western medicine with the pre-Socrates and uh, school and how it became adulterated later on. But your current writing goes further, turns our notions of the origins of Western science and technology and law and medicine and the origins of Western civilization on its head. So returning to the figure of Pythagoras and considered the father of Western philosophy, share with us some of the story and the mysterious components of his life that have baffled classicists and historians to this day. For example, the the mysterious Persian Abaris, the people known as the Avars, the land of the uh, people of the Hyperborea, which uh, um, was both the god Apollo and the wise man Pythagoras, are frequently associated with, and then the role and the journey of the arrow and its purpose in the ancient world. Could we start there, please? Yes, sure. What we have is a lot of material. Some of it is fragmentary, but 
it's in pretty good condition. We have ancient Greek texts from 2,000 years ago on average. Some of the texts are older. Some of them are maybe 1,800 years old. Most of them written in Greek, some in Latin, some in, another langu- some in other languages. But we have ancient Greek texts that have been sitting around and have been known in the Western world for centuries. And the question is, what do we do with them? How do we understand them? How do we maybe choose not to understand them? And there are a lot of histories, you see, because with the ancient Greeks, the differentiation between myth and history doesn't really exist. You can actually see how our so-called scientific idea of history evolved out of myth. We have created what we consider to be a scientific objectual, objective factual concept of time. But this is actually a scientific myth that we live in. We have created a scientific mythology, and we believe in it. But everybody, every tribe, every race, every people who has a myth or a mythology, a system of myths, believes in them. We believe in our own myths, our scientific myths. But when you go back to the Greeks, you have these texts, and what are we to do with them? Because these are texts about describing things that happen. And so we have what are considered stories about Pythagoras meeting with somebody who came from where? We don't know. Hyperborea, somebody called Abaris, carrying an arrow, a golden arrow in his hand. What does this mean? And healing people, uh, curing places, uh, balancing the elements, um, finding the, the solution for plagues. And these stories have unanimously been dismissed very, very patronizingly by classical scholars for a long, long time, hundreds of years. Oh, these were fictions. These were fantasies. These were literary just they were just stories spun out of the imagination of ancient greek writers who had nothing better to do than just you know sit in a taverna or bar or something and just make up these incredible stories and it goes back 15 20 years ago when i was researching my earlier books i began to realize there's much much more to these stories than that because i knew quite a bit about eastern eastern asian mythology and history and I started to realize there was an extraordinary pattern here. These Greek stories could not be just invented. And so this book is basically showing, demonstrating for the first time that the ancient Greeks knew and were faithfully reporting contacts between people coming to the Mediterranean all the way from what we now would call Mongolia, what we now would call Tibet, over two and a half thousand years ago. And these contacts, these journeys, these meetings actually happened and they had extraordinary repercussions for what has now become this chaotic, crazy, corrupt, totally lost, completely mindless, hyperactive, completely um, disillusioned as well as full of illusions, this Western civilization that we're, we're wandering around in the shambles of now. But uh, the origins and what this new book of mine is really about is Western civilization was originally brought together, not just by minds, but by mystics, 
people who were not just thinkers, they were healers, they were able to access a world of oneness, to access a world of reality where they could see things, not just think about things, they could see truths that needed to be brought into the world. And this is how Western culture, the seeds of Western culture, look even at the word culture, it is about an organism something to be cultivated, something to be looked after, something to be tended. Western culture was actually brought into existence as a very, very delicate organism by extremely, not just intelligent, but very sensitive, very, very wise beings who came together from the West, from the East. So we say have Pythagoras, who was born, brought up on the Greek island of Samos, near to now what is Turkey, but then he eventually moved to Italy. And that's where he set up his Pythagorean brotherhood and community and so on. But we know Pythagoras traveled. And again, this is one of these strange, if you like, omissions, to put it very politely. People assume, oh, Pythagoras traveled to Egypt, because we have all these fantasies about Egypt. Like we have fantasies nowadays about Tibet and this extraordinary, unique spirituality of Tibet and also the extraordinary fantasies we have about Egypt. But when we really look at the evidence for where Pythagoras went, we follow the traces, observe the signs, we see that he actually traveled into Central Asia. He spent time with nomads. He went right, right into the areas beyond Iran where the nomadic wandering tribes lived. That's where he got a lot of his wisdom from. And that is, the, that is where he got the clothing he chose to wear when he came back to Greece. And Pythagoras went to the east, but there were also people coming from the region of what now is Mongolia, who came all the way to Pythagoras in Italy. And there was this meeting, a transmission, an extraordinary confluence of East and West, and out of that confluence, certain fundamental strands of Western civilization came into being. Does that make any sense? Makes a great deal of sense. Uh, let me add something for you to discuss. Today, there's a large number of the American intelligentsia, and by that I mean the more educated in the United States, who are embracing Buddhism uh, with vigor. And it's also taken on a quality that is almost mythological in its acceptance since most Western Buddhists feel this tradition is not tainted with corruption of any kind. So first, since both the Mongols and the Tibetans shared a common pre-Buddhist tradition at one time, and Buddhism actually usurped much of our, uh, much from their earlier tradition known as Bon, would you give us your views on how Tibetan Buddhism is also misguided in some ways, in tracing its sacred origins as a unique culture. No, uh, the Tibetan Buddhism is not misguided. The, the misguidedness comes with us. I that, mean, that's what I meant. <clears throat> yeah, let's, let's be, be blunt about this. We, any, anybody who grows up in Western culture, whether we call that Europe or the United States or Canada, and then the kind of the ripplings out of Western culture now into the Far East and wherever it goes. But let's just stick with North America and Europe. Anybody with any sensitivity who grows up in Western culture nowadays is going to say, my God, 
Um, there's no meaning left. Christianity has been corrupted. We live in a secular society here. Politics has gone wild. Culture is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing. So what are people going to do, most people? They're going to look outside of Western civilization, and they're going to find answers in the Amazon rainforest, or in Tibet, or in China, or in Japan, or in Nepal, or India. And that's fine. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's totally understandable and natural. And so many people benefit from becoming adepts or disciples of Buddhist and other traditions. But the question then is, what happens? I mean, there are many, many questions that come out of this. And where do we really, really go with this? Because first of all, we have projected our unfulfilled fantasy of spiritual purity onto the Tibetans. And this is our own inner, if you like, our American Shangri-La. So we projected that onto Tibetan Buddhism. And this is, I, I mean, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is, is the most wonderful, extraordinary being. But when you go back in history to the previous Dalai Lamas, the idea of nonviolence was not practiced as a historical reality by previous Dalai Lamas. And this is something I go into the book. I don't really feel we need to talk too much about it now, but there have been so many fantasies. Tibetan Buddhism is, it was a part of life there. And it is very difficult because if one brings up now the subject of Tibetan Buddhism and maybe previous Dalai Lamas who, God forbid, used violence or used any violence against shamanic or what we call sometimes a burn tradition, although it's a very difficult term to use, burn, it becomes a very, very contentious issue. It doesn't become a contentious issue because of the historical facts. Those historical facts I've given in my book and in some very, very long essays at the end of the book. That's not the issue. The issue is what we have personally invested in maintaining this illusion of a perfectly pure Tibetan Buddhist Shangri-La that we can feel comfortable with. And so basically, the issue is to do with us. It's not to do with Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, the one thing that I remember being, you know, told years and years and years ago by a friend in, in London who, who'd spent some time with Tibetan Buddhists and with the, the kind of the European and American disciples around the Tibetan Buddhists, the Tibetan Buddhists themselves, they tend to be very free. They joke, they laugh, they, they, they make fun of things. They have a tremendously wonderful attitude to life. And then there are the Western disciples sitting around so serious. Very pious. And they don't see the contradiction. They don't see the contrast between themselves and these joking, laughing um, Buddhists, full of hilarity, joking, making fun of themselves. And it comes to a point where we have to start making fun of ourselves. And it's interesting because there's, there's somebody, a gentleman, who's already published three separate reviews of my new book online. He's gone to a lot of trouble, the dear man. Um, I actually spoke with him on the phone about a year ago, and he's really, really intent on um, pulling down this new book of mine. And I wondered why until I actually read a few days ago. I read one of these reviews on Open Salon, I think it's called. And, and this dear man, he, he belongs to a Hindu sect, a tantric sect. 
Bhakti-Vaishnava sect that originated in Hindu tantrism, but now is kind of rooted and planted in upstate New York. And that's wonderful, but somewhere it's, it's, this is his problem. He is drawn to Western philosophy. He has a, a tradition, an Indian tradition that he follows, but how does an American handle this? And of course, if I bring up these issues in my own book, somehow I am going to get the shadow of people's unresolved conflicts. Okay, hold your thoughts for a moment. I wanted to give this opening just to show you, the audience, the complexities when we talk about these issues. Now I'm going to take just a few moments and ground this conversation in the realities and vagaries of our own existence every day. And if you would please take any part of what I'm going to talk about and see if we can sew all of this together, connect the dots, all right? Now, here's the issue, and here's where it ties in, I believe, to what your larger lesson is. In our society, we have a dominant political um, group in the Tea Party and in the Republicans and conservatives, not always the same by any means, but for argument, joining together to take over the House. They want less government, but they're indiscriminate. They don't care about the military-industrial complex being reduced uh, or the security state being reduced or anything that's repressive being reduced, but the very parts of the government that would actually protect and help them if they were to be made homeless or hungry, they want to eviscerate it. At the same time, most of these Republicans and conservatives are aligned with conservative religious groups and talk uh, fervently about the power of being born again. Glenn Beck is at the top of the list. Uh, You know, how he was a drug addict and and obnoxious. He self-deprecates, but then he says, but he turned it all around when he found God. Now, everything he does is invoke the name of God. George Bush was sure that we should be in Iraq because God told him to go to Iraq with our army. So now we have people who say they're very religious, use the name of God and Jesus, are angry with you if you're a secular humanist or a spiritual person, think you're weak and and that you are uh, a liability. In fact, Glenn Beck actually stated that the biggest problem in America are the progressives, people such as myself, who are humanist, spiritualist, and non-aligned politically, uh, but are looking for the truth wherever it may be. And because we believe in helping the poor, and we believe in helping those who are suffering, and we believe that when someone falls, you, you extend your hand to help them up, and you don't try to exploit everything to your advantage economically, and you try to find the value of a person through the spirit that you all share, these are all anathema. These are terrible to the ruling elite. And then you have the ruling elite, the political elite, the economic elite, the immediate elite, the celebrity elite, the corporate elite, the institutional elite, and they control the think tank elite, the foundation elite, And so one day, you virtually have anyone, such as yourself, or my guest today, uh, Chris Hayes, you have them them excluded uh, from any debate or dialogue at all. Instead, I'm suggesting if these people really understood spiritual values, 
then what can they learn from the past and from other civilizations and from the East? And how did the East deal with these same type of inner political dynamics, inner um, uh, uh, contradictions that we have so that we can learn something uh, about ourselves? Because it seems as if those people who are so proud in their conservative values are so quick to walk away from anyone who is suffering if they're not the right color, the right religion, the right politic, the right economic class, if they're not part of the best and brightest. And what really disturbs me is that those people who are true victims and, and are looking at people to help them who created the problem and will throw them under the bus as soon as they've been used as much as they can. Your thoughts, please. I think you're only getting half of the picture, Gary, because you have the people who are doing all this, the conservatives, the, the conservatives, the, the cruel, mindless, selfish, whatever you want to call them, the elitists. And then on, you other, on the other hand, you tend to have more progressive people who are looking to the East, who are looking to other religions, looking to other traditions, who are working for social change. And to me, what is essential is both. We are all missing something so fundamental here. What people did in the East is the business of the East. What people did in other cultures is their business. We have a responsibility to our own culture. Western civilization was brought into existence for, I mean, to put it very crudely, Western civilization was brought into existence for a sacred purpose. It was given the guidelines. From the very, very beginning, Western culture had very clear guidelines. And I talk about these so clearly in my new book, A Story Waiting to Pierce You. And let me just say something about the title there. This is not a story waiting to be discussed by you. It is a story waiting to pierce you. We are always nowadays wanting to be in control of the dialogue, of the terms of the discussion. And that is a part of the problem. We still think at this stage in Western American society that we can discuss things, we can work things out, we can decide things, and we can change things. What if that power has been taken away from us? What if it was taken away from us long years ago? What if we are actually living in a world that has already been taken away from us inwardly, and it's time that we face up that the decision-making ability is no longer with us? We lost that right because we've gone so far away from what Western civilization was meant to be that everything we do now loses power. And this is what I was trying to say earlier on. People get into terrible inner conflicts when they really identify in North America with Eastern, Hindu, Buddhist, shamanic, whatever traditions. It's wonderful to integrate those into your life as a Westerner. It's wonderful to learn what you can and bring that into your grounded, rooted existence as a compassionate American. But to identify with an Eastern or other spiritual tradition is good for you as a human being, maybe, but it is not good for a Western civilization that was meant to be lived according to certain legal, political, health-oriented, education-based rules. 
It's like the DNA, Western civilization, was brought into existence. It had all the blueprints there of how to be just to people, how to work with people, how to be a real environmentalist, not by trying to fiddle with the system when it's too late, but to, to learn the real environmentalism, which is actually to come to a balance inside oneself. It meant looking at sickness from such a deep point that you don't just say, well, how can we help people who are sick? We say, how can people help being sick when they live in a sick society? How can we be trying to heal sick individuals when we're all living in a sick society? To me, the people who are healthy are sick because they're not showing the sickness of the society we're in. And it's usually the sick people, the depressed people, the upset people, who are the most sensitive because they are aware of how far we've drifted away from what Western civilization was, what, was meant to be. Western civilization was not meant to repeat Chinese or Japanese or Indian or Egyptian civilization. It had a unique role to play. That's why it was given this blueprint by very, very wise people. And I know this is very disturbing to many people, especially in this country, because we want to feel there's no one above us. And if I mention this, sometimes I'm accused of being elitist, but I'm not, because when you look at real spiritual traditions, whether it's Christ, Buddha, Pythagoras, Parmenides, Empedocles, these wonderful Greeks who I write about and I'm so connected with, they came with a greater sense of justice and meaning in life, and they wanted to share it. And they gave people the ability to share it. But they said, first of all, you need to wake up. First of all, you need to see that you are not living a life worth call being called human. If you just go through your life working, 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 paying your taxes, being the slave and the victim of somebody, God knows what, and then ending up in a coffin, when, how many seconds, how many minutes of that life did you really live as a human being with dignity? And this is something that has been stripped away from us. And if I can just add one thing, that whether it is whatever side of the political debate or the spiritual debate we are on now, whether it is conservatives deciding which wars to wage and how many people to kick out of their homes, or whether it is people trying to draw up plans for a new age based on... based on fairer principles based on ideas and ideals of beauty and so on and so on. Whichever side of the fence we are on, we are working for change. And when we work for change like that, I know this is going to be very challenging to say, but when we work for change like that, whichever type of change we're working for, we are in fact doing ourselves a tremendous disservice because we do not know what it is to sit down with a human being to stand up and just be where we are now but just to reach out to someone mother teresa was not going and drawing up plans for a new age neither was gandhi they did what was needed in the moment and i'm afraid that so many progressives are working for change but this is the american nightmare you know, this country was founded on rebellion against the British and change and change, let's change, let's have something new. And now we're still going for change. The change is over. The time for change is over. All it is time for now is just being where we are. Well, living an authentic life, here is my concern. 
After being an activist my entire life and a healer in the field, I see that the majority of people, including the majority within movements, as much as they are sincere and dedicated, and I do not question that, I question the outcome because I believe they're living through the myths of their stories. And I believe that if you cannot live outside of the myth of your story and never realize how much of your story is a myth, then one day when you do take that moment to reflect, when you take a respite and you take, uh, you take time to say, okay, what have I achieved as a human being? Have I connected? Have I, have I lived mindfully in the moment? Or have I always been planning for the future, always retirement, or, or going here or going there? Am, am I going to put off having a joyful life to have the right relationship? Am I going to um, uh, abandon the notion of love till someone tells me they love me? Am I going to, am I going to worry about cancer and heart disease until I get them? Uh, or am I going to deny that heart disease and cancer and diabetes are possible until I get them? All of these are myths. And, and it really hit me when I recently was talking with a group of people. And these are uh, liberal people. And it was at a, a little party. And it was in a social environment. And not once were people talking about things that brought joy and happiness. They were talking about everything they were angry about. Yeah. And I asked them, I said, you keep saying support, you know, Bill Clinton. Did Bill Clinton lie? Well, well, yes. I said, then he is a liar. Did he deceive? Well, then he's a deceiver. But we don't like to accept someone for what they have mastered and who they are. Has that dark side. Or if, it, if, if they do and do something or say something uh, inappropriate or do something that we would all accept as being the wrong choice to take. Well, there's redemption. There's there's plenty of ways, that, and you don't have to be Martin Luther and be angry at how people pay to get redeemed. Bill Clinton's uh, gone through nothing more, nothing less than what <laughs> Martin Luther would have been outraged about when people go buy uh, go to a, go to the people in the Catholic Church room and, and buy a redemption. Um, uh, and I'm saying, if you lie to one person, don't lie to another. If you cheat one person, don't cheat another. If you betray one person, but don't betray another. Which are you? Are you what you have done or what you would like to believe that you would not do, but have done? And I have to accept the reality at this point in my life that you are what you do. And what you do frequently is coming from your conditioned self. So with all the best of intentions, with all the best input, people frequently make very poor choices and then master that choice because at some point it worked for them. When you lie and you get away with it, it works. When you steal and get away with it, it works. I never find people who just lie once, steal once, betray once. It becomes a pattern, and we don't look at the pattern's behavior. We don't look them in our institutions. I gave this example. We had this whole month of breast cancer awareness last this past uh, month of October. Everybody was wearing pink. Well, when I did an investigation on it, I saw I found that more women will develop breast cancer because of the what they will do because of this month yeah. than would have been saved. They'll start taking preventatively drugs, chemotherapy drugs. The biggest sponsors of that whole movement were chemotherapy companies and people wanting to get mammography. And Dr. Samuel Epstein, the most knowledgeable man in America about uh, the dangers of mammography, uh, clearly showed that more women will die from cancer from getting a mammogram than will be saved from having it detected. And yet it becomes a ritual, just like the March for the Cure. Well, okay, you've had tens of thousands of marches. Where's your cure? 
You've had a war on cancer. Where's your cure? A war on drugs. Where's your cure? A war on poverty. Where's your, where's your end to it? We have nothing but medical Vietnams. We never end up looking at the results of our efforts. We never examine the motives of the person for what they've done and how they've done it. We praise people like Donald Trump or George Soros on the left or the Koch brothers on the right because they're powerful, they're rich, and they're influential, but without asking, how did you do that? And if you did it unethically and immorally where other people had to suffer so you could get ahead, what does that tell us about you? And instead of examining our connection with people who are egotistical, narcissistic, power rubbers, we instead will say, as long as I can have some of that for myself, as long as I can align with you, then I will become a Clintonite or an Obamanite or a Bushite or a Republican or conservative. Or, and we then wrap these monikers uh, on our psyche, and that just extends the myth of our stories. I rarely find people authentic. Your thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, this is, it it's all comes back to that. Look, it is about loss, and it is about pain. Unbelievable loss, unbelievable pain. And when we are rushing around trying to find identities, monikers, as you call it, that we want to be this or that or that, it's because we have lost any real sense of who we are. And that is, you know, what you say about the dark side, it's so important. I, I mean, in this country, we have never, ever faced up to what's happened with the American Indians. It's here so much in North Carolina, where my wife and I live, so real, people just turn away from it. We have never made amends for that. It was not a necessary part of anything. The Iroquois played a tremendous role, the Iroquois in particular, in forming and shaping the U.S. Constitution. And all that we did in return was, was basically just kill them and kick them out. And the same with the Cherokee and the same all around. Nobody has ever faced up to that. And you know what? When we don't face up as a nation, I mean, I'm speaking as an outsider, but I really feel for that situation living here in America. When we don't really feel for that situation, the guilt is there. When the guilt is unexpressed, we get sick. But above all, below that, I mean, just speaking about Native Americans, let me try and make, say one thing to put this in perspective from my point of view, from a deeper place. Last year, we had a gathering here near to Asheville of Native American elders from all around the United States and Canada. And there was an elder, a chief, of, uh, of a tribe up in New York State. And I was very, very struck because I spoke there. I was allowed to speak among the elders, and I spoke about Western civilization, about the spirituality of Western civilization, about how we have lost what Native Americans call the original instructions. Every tribe has its original instructions that come from Raven or come from wherever. They come from a source, a divine source. That is how Native Americans lived and had their laws, had their justice, had their healing, how they functioned, how they had balance, how they lived where they lived, including the war and the peace and everything. And when it was my turn to speak at one point, I said, you know, we in the West, it is a tragedy because we have forgotten our original instructions. Not that we've forgotten the Native Americans' original instructions. We in the West have forgotten the original instructions at the roots of Western civilization. And because of that loss, it is so, we are so confused, we are so lost because we have lost those original instructions. We don't even know that we've lost them anymore. And you know what happened? 
there were some white people there. They look at me and they say, who's this guy? What's he talking about? That chief, um, that chief of that particular tribe, he went to bed and he was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And he was weeping and weeping. And the next morning he got up and we were there together at dawn. And he was about to embrace me and he said, thank you, thank you. He said, you have reminded me that I have to go back to my tribe and remind them that we have to, as a tribe, be true to our original instructions. Now, here is me as a Westerner speaking about how Westerners have lost their original instructions. I have never once met an American who weeps about what they have lost in terms of the origins of Western civilization. But I say this to a Native American, and he, he bursts into tears. Because these people, they still understand they're close enough to what they've lost that they know they've lost it. We have gone so far from what we've lost, we don't even know what we've lost anymore. That's why we have to clutch at Buddhist or Hindu or shamanic or Taoist or whatever, Sufi traditions. It's wonderful to do that. But what have we lost that it's the heart, at the core, at the roots of Western civilization? What we can, can we do now really to reclaim something, some real life in the Western world? Because otherwise it's all just, it's a hall of mirrors. You're it's right. Mirrors and mirrors and mirrors, and we're going absolutely nowhere. We get more and more caught up in the darkness of our own psyches. We project them more and more and more. We create fantastic wars. We project, you know, a spiritual idealism onto somewhere else in the Himalayas or whatever. And we don't take responsibility for our own lives now. But let me add something to that, Peter, and, and thank you. That was a very, very brilliant insight that you shared with us. It's what I call remarkable moment uh, insight, where we'll think about it, and we'll think about it far after this moment. Recently, I went on my annual spiritual rebalancing, and, and I like to be alone. I go to a place in the wilderness, and I fast, just drink water for about five days, and reflect upon the meaning of my life and whether I'm honoring that meaning or not. And it's so easy to get distracted, to get distracted uh, into uh, fame or the, uh, uh, the ego or materialism, the things that come when you're successful in the United States. And you think about what you have, the people you could be with, the relationships you could have. And all that is very real and palpable based upon what our society tells your value should be. And I, this was just after the I left the, the, the next morning after that night, a very famous person. You would know him, everyone in this audience would know him. And I've counseled about 1,000 people. I was counseling at about 11 o'clock at night. And when I finished all this, the person went to, to open up a, uh, their wallet and says, what do I owe you? And I said, I don't charge people. I said, no, no, how much do I owe you? And I said, nothing. I said, if you feel that you've gained something from this discussion, please help another person and uh, just pass on the energy. I said, I have a gift. It's a gift of healing. It came from my mother. I've taken my life to share it with others. He said, well, that's stupid. And so I said, why? He said, well, he said, let me give you some advice. I said, all right. He said, you're really, really stupid. I said, well, you're probably not alone in your thoughts. I'm sure there are other people who would agree with you. He said, uh, he said, you're the most famous nutritionist health authority in America. That's why I came to you. And it took me six months to get in here. You would be like Michael Jordan 
or Tiger Woods or anyone else who's famous not in getting as much as you could in and capitalize on it. And I said, then you're stating that the only value we have if we do have gifts, whatever those gifts may be, as an athlete or as an orator or as a painter, is to commodify it. But what if you feel the gift is itself a gift that cannot be charged? You cannot monetize that gift. If you do, you will adulterate it. And you will then no longer have the gift. You may have the ritual, but it's like one of these people who became a grandmaster Reiki healer after three weekends, you know, paying someone at a workshop, and they can't even open the top of a pot, bottle of soda. They have no healing, but they bought it. So we want to buy our credentials. We want to buy our, our so-called uh, gifts. And I say, these are gifts that are not for sale. And I said, let me tell you a story. You've told me why I'm wrong. Uh, in 1977, in May, I did a lecture uh, at a request to a, a group out in Brooklyn. It was a school, and it was way at the end of Brooklyn. And my lectures go a long time because I always wait till everyone's had their questions answered at the end of the regular lecture, and sometimes that can take an hour. So here it was about 11 o'clock at night, and finally the last person's asked their questions. So I stuck around and helped the, um, the custodian fold up all the chairs and put everything away, and it was midnight we got out there. And driving down the street, I noticed about four blocks up, five blocks up, there was this woman, and she was one of the people asking questions. So I said, it was kind of late to be in this part of Brooklyn. It's not the best part of Brooklyn. So I pulled over and I said, Miss, I said, do you live in the neighborhood? She's, oh, no, I live in the Bronx. I said, well, that's a long way. The buses are not running now and probably you won't be able to get a subway. She's, well, that's all right. I'll get home. I said, no, you won't. I said, get in the car. Let me drive you. So we drove the woman back to the Bronx and it took almost an hour to get her there. Not a word was said. She gets out of the car and then she starts up the steps. She turns around, she comes back, and she says to me, she says, I just want to say that I came tonight because my sister has cancer. And I know that you have done a lot of work on helping people who have terminal cancer seek out alternative approaches. And we know someone who took one of those approaches in their life today where otherwise they'd be dead. And But had you charged even $10 for that lecture, I am so broke I could not have afforded it because we have no money. We spend all of our money on helping my sister. But I feel now that I have enough information and resources from you that I'm, I'm confident we can do a lot for my sister. You gave me the names of doctors. You said you will call those doctors and get us some free service. She said, I can't tell you. That's so nice. I said, okay. And then on the way home, I'm thinking, what if I would have charged, let's say $20, and she couldn't afford to come? and her sister would have died. I don't think we appreciate the consequences of who cannot afford what we have to offer in life. And if you have a way of helping people, don't we have a more responsibility to do so without always thinking what's in it for me? What do I get in return? But I extend that same concept to everything else in, in what we do and how frequently in our society the most insecure... And here's my point. The most insecure, 
the people living through their rituals that what they're doing is the right thing. Almost always they're going to work on their career. They're going to make their money. And then when that's done, when they're financially secure, then they'll become spiritual. Then they'll find oh, time yeah. for the poor. Then oh, they'll, they'll join a cause. Now, my final point. So I'm up there in the mountains above Flagstaff. I'm guessing it's about 12,000 feet. And people who were campers who would come by maybe once or twice a day, people come down more this area. And I was at the top of this mountain. You can see photographs of it up on Facebook, my Facebook page. And they'd say, well, where's your sleeping bag? I don't need one. Where's your tent? Don't need one. Where's your food? Don't need one. Well, how long are you here? A week. Well, how you, what are you doing? I'm meditating. I'm reflecting on life. Well, that's strange. What's that mean? On my way back from Flagstaff, an hour south of Flagstaff, is of what is considered the, the spiritual mecca place of America, Sedona. Yeah. Population about 13,000. I stopped off at a little restaurant, and suddenly people came over and said, oh, aren't you Gary and on? I said, yeah. And they said, could you do a little lecture here? So I, I did a little lecture, an impromptu lecture that evening, about four hours later. And my first questions were, you're on to spirituality. Oh, yes. You care about people. Yes. You probably come from other parts in America. One woman says, oh, she came from South Beach. You know, it's very materialistic, and blah, blah, blah. now she lives here, and it's the most spiritual place in the world, and it's the most loving place, and it's the greatest place. And I said, well, the mountains here are magnificent. It's only about a 10-square-mile area of all these red mountains. And I said, so you care about people? They all said, yes. I said, okay, i got a question for you. I stopped off uh, just two, two miles from here this afternoon, and there's a bunch of homeless vets. They're sleeping outdoors, no electricity, no water, no food, no money, but no one helping them. And I ask, there are a lot of artists and spiritual people. They're into crystals and meditation and chakra rebalancing and veganism or all foods and colonics. None of these people come out to help you? No. We're talking about about four or 500 homeless people. Then how about the women's shelter for abused women? No. How about going to hospices and helping some of the... Uh, dying people pass over knowing that they have some comfort and, and company in that process. No. How about being a big sister to some of the orphan? No. So I said, I, I got a question. If you're talking about being this thing, what have you actualized that is not commercial, that actually shows that you care enough about a human being to help him? And the hands just stayed down. And then one guy gets up, and he's very angry, and he's going to leave. And I said, that's fine. But I went on then to talk about what I believe is separating ourselves from the myth of our lives and reconnecting with mindfulness in the moment, and we don't have to have rituals and, uh, and be attached to people or things in order to live an authentic life and to share that authentic energy with other people in an unconditional way. But it was like talking to people as if I were talking Greek and they only spoke French. They didn't get it. And even to this day, I'm wondering how many people rush off to a place. If it's not Sedona, how about rushing off to a Tea Party conference or rushing off to something else or rushing off to a liberal or thinking there's the salvation, there's where I will redeem myself, not by what I do individually, but what the collective we will represent and therefore feel, uh, feel justified in my existence. Your thoughts, please. It all comes down to identification. And again, just very quickly, we identify with something, we even identify as being spiritual or progressive or conservative or whatever, when we have lost the real identity. And for example, in, in my new book, again, you know, a story waiting to pierce you, not a story waiting to be read by you. 
story is alive. This book that I wrote, it is actually alive. It's even more alive than we are. And it was very interesting because after I wrote it, I showed, I showed it to a few people, and somebody came back and said, you know, you're in America. You really need to write more about America. I wrote half a page of the book. It's only a short book, 85 pages of main text. Half a page is about America. And I was told, you have to say more. I said, no. From the larger scheme of things, America, yeah, it's a big deal now. From the larger scheme of things seen against the backdrop of eternity, America is just half a page in a much, much longer book. We are not what we think we are. We need to realize that life, real life, is always moving. It does not honor structures, hierarchies, identifications. Life is moving. It's moving like an arrow. Again, that is the symbolism of this Mongol who came, a shaman who came from the Far East to the Western world, to the Mediterranean two and a half thousand years ago to help with the beginnings, the seedings of Western civilization. He was moving, and the movement is like the movement of an arrow. No distraction. The opposite of distraction, it just goes straight ahead. Shoo, so simple. And, and that, is, that to me is why I've had to write such a simple book, such a short book. It is all so simple. It comes back to something very, very, very simple. What is really going to pierce us, whether it is doing good for somebody or whether it is actually having to realize that we have to go deeper into who we are, much deeper, ask questions, go beyond our spiritual or political identifications, and go back, because there is this incredible song waiting to be sung. You know why we're dying, why we're so sick as a culture? Because we don't hear the song that this culture was supposed to sing. It's all been distorted, it's been forgotten, it's been locked away. Western culture was supposed, it, it has a song, it has a tune, it has a magic. And uh, th there's one thing I have to tell you off for, Gary, because last time that I was on, you, you didn't let me mention my website. And could oh, I mention do. it very yes. quickly? Yes, yeah, please do. Just so that if anybody is interested, please just go to www.peterkingsley.org. P-E-T-E-R-K-I-N-G-S-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. It's a very, very simple website. We haven't changed it for quite a long time. But it's just this simplicity. Please just try to go back to the simplicity in yourself. Ask questions. Don't settle on answers. Ask questions about your answers. Keep on asking, asking questions. Go deeper, go deeper. Keep on moving because life moves. There is a life now where we are. The old structures are falling away, the political structures, the economic structures, the financial, monetary structures. It's obvious everything is crumbling. We don't realize the spiritual structures are crumbling too. But in all of this crumbling, in all of this death, in all of this decay, in all of this confusion, there is this incredible focus of life. And if we can just stay with that arrow that is moving through the present moment con constantly, being where we are, doing what's needed in the moment, that arrow will take us into the future. It can seem impossible, but that is like the, the focus, the arrow of life that's just taking us. We don't know where we're going. We can't work it out. We don't have the mechanism. We don't have the brain cells anymore to work out where we're going. The future will be different than what things have been, totally different. 
We can't take even our ideals into the future, but we can take the life inside us. We can take the nature inside us. And whether we go on retreats into the mountains or we just find that nature in our garden or inside ourselves in meditation, that nature, that is the future inside us. Peter, I'm going to invite you back in the near future to talk for an hour just on reclaiming an authentic life. Wonderful. I'd be delighted to do that. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Give your website one more time. www.peterkingsley.org. Thank you very much. My guest, Dr. Peter Kingsley, author of an important work, A Story Waiting to Pierce You. 